You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood, your host for this episode. It's safe to say that we all have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, including researchers. The first interview you will hear in today's episode is of Dr. Kaylin Ratner, a recent doctoral graduate who was forced to rethink her research project at the end of her studies. She studies the concept of derailment in a cohort of Cornell College students who started in fall 2016. In our second interview, you'll hear postdoctoral fellow Dr. Anna Maria Porras, who uses science communication via social media to introduce and inform her audience about the wonderful world of microbes. Dr. Porras will talk about her research, science communication and outreach, and how her outreach endeavors have been reformed due to the pandemic. First, here is Jeff P. interviewing Dr. Kaylin Ratner. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Kaylin Ratner, a postdoctoral research fellow at the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. She recently finished her dissertation research, which focused on identity and purpose during adolescence and emerging adulthood. Her work tracked Cornell undergraduate students throughout their academic career until their completion in spring 2020, which was ultimately impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. In today's conversation, I chatted with Dr. Ratner about how the pandemic affected her research and how she adjusted accordingly. So do you mind briefly talking a little bit about yourself as well as some of the work that you've been doing here at Cornell? Let's say I guess my story kind of goes back to 2013, 2014. Um, I got a master's degree in clinical psychology from the University of Central Florida. And then I applied to start my PhD work here at Cornell. Primarily my work focuses on the developmental periods of adolescence and emerging adulthood. Um, I'm from the Department of Human Development, and I'm primarily interested in how adolescents and emerging adults think about and reconcile their senses of identity, purpose, and meaning in life. And then I'm particularly interested in not only how those the development of those senses can can leverage well-being, but then also how experiences with certain types of mental illness can shape who you think you are, where you think you're going in life, and you know, what it means to be alive. Um, so that's really my work in a nutshell. <laughs> um, I've primarily been focusing a lot on uh, the effects of major depressive disorder and also um, non-clinical, but still highly prevalent depressive symptoms in the general population, right? Because we all walk around with some non-zero level of these symptoms. We've all felt sad or less energized and less engaged. And those are all things that you would see in, in depression just at a higher level. Do you mind talking a little bit about how you were able to investigate those concepts? Yeah. So like I said, I I spent a lot of time thinking about um, adolescence and emerging adulthood. And when we're talking about emerging adulthood in particular, um, that's really the developmental period between the ages of 18 to 25 or 29, depending on who you're talking to. So a lot of college students fall into this developmental period. Growing within this period, people tend to report feeling both like an adult, but also not quite like an adult. When you ask them, like, have you reached adulthood? They say yes and no, rather than just yes or just no. And that really defines this developmental period is this, this feeling of in-betweenness. 
Um, and so also within that period, they're dealing with a lot of developmental milestones, one of which is identity development. So young people in emerging adulthood are often testing out their independence for the very first time. They are figuring out who they are and where they're going. And especially within college, which we think of as a developmental context, something that enables people to explore who they are, um, they're actively charting their life course. So for the last, gosh, since I basically stepped on Cornell's campus, um, we've been investigating this thing that um, my PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Tony Burrow and I, um, called derailment, uh, which is really the sense that you've gotten off course in life, that wherever you're heading right now is different from where you were heading in the past. And because you're, you sense these two different pathways, you tend to feel disconnected from that person you were in the past because you're no longer on that pathway. And what we've found is that feeling off course in life, feeling derailed tends to be related to higher levels of depressive symptoms. Um, but there is one study that we did uh, a couple years ago where we actually found the reverse. And so my dissertation really focused on identifying, well, what are the conditions under which derailment might positively predict, so predict greater depressive symptoms, versus when it might predict lesser depressive symptoms? So, so what are the contours of that association? Can you talk a little bit about how did the pandemic hit you in terms of your research? To understand how it affected my work, uh, I had to take like a little bit of a step back and say that my dissertation really began back in fall 2016. Um, I started the study with the incoming class of 2020, and I measured both depression and derailment, among other things, in their freshman year. And so I measured these things in freshman year, and then my dissertation here in 2020 was going to assess them again now in their senior year. And what I was going to do with that was not only look at you know, what was predicting their functioning in senior year, like what from their freshman year could then forecast how they were doing in senior year, um, especially with regard to depression and derailment. Uh, but also my dissertation was going to be the very first time, it's gonna, it was going to be the longest tracking of derailment in particular, and then also looking at depression um, over the course of all of college. And a lot of our work looking at depress depressive symptoms in college students really focuses on either the entry into college, so like their freshman year, or very, you know, to a much lesser extent, uh, the exit out of college, um, but very few look at within the bookends of college. So <laughs> that involves surveying them at the end of college, right? Uh, so we could get that whole picture of college. So we had this plan, you know, I did a wave at the beginning of their senior year, so fall 2019, and then I was scheduled to do another wave of data collection in um, late April um, or May 2020, just to get them right before finals period, but try to get them as close to the end of their senior year without being disrupted to like their finals period and, you know, burdening them. And I distinctly remember my advisor and I were walking into the class that, that, I, that he taught and we were talking like, oh my gosh, I think they're going to send the kids home soon. What are we going to like this has completely, it's, it's derailed us, pun totally attended. But we were walking, we were like, should we release a week early? Like, should we get them while they're still on campus? And we were like, oh, no, we can't do it, you know, this early because it's not even spring break. <laughs> we're like, this isn't the end of senior year. And so, like, developmentally, I have to wait for these people to age. Like, I know that it seems like small beans to be, like, you know, a couple or a couple weeks there. And it probably is in the grand scheme of things. But I really wanted to get them at the, quote, unquote, end of their senior year. And... So we're walking, we're like, 
do we do we have to do we launch a week early? And like as we're walking, we're passing people all talking about is school going to close? They're all talking about like, oh my gosh. And like, it was like within 24, 48 hours, we got the call that, you know, oh, you're going to stay home after spring break. And so we were like, okay, well, if they're going to be staying at home, you know, let's try to stay on track. And then like within a couple days after that, we got the notification where it's like, all classes are suspended right now, go home. We ended up deciding that Let's go ahead and survey the students when they come back for virtual instruction. The last wave of data collection occurred like as students were adjusting to virtual instruction. And I know that that was not ideal, but I also did not want to bear on them with the survey, like around their finals period with this, these rules and their lives at home, which could be who knows what. So I wrote a very interesting um, discussion section. And within there, you all can write your limitations, which, you know, cover the caveats of what's going on kind of in your study. Like what are the things that you should be mindful of as you interpret these results? And I wrote like several pages about like, we were studying symptoms of distress. And so let's talk about how the pandemic pandemic might've affected not only symptoms of distress, but like these seniors had to deal with so much. Um, they had to leave the campus so suddenly, they didn't get a chance to say goodbye to any of their friends or the campus that they had lived on for the last four years. Um, they're facing a nosediving economy. Um, a lot of their jobs and a lot of their internships were terminated. And so you want to talk about feeling thrown off course in life, the sense of derailment that we were trying to pick up. Part of our theoretical building of derailment is that it should be minimally affected by external stimulation. Like some people experience a lot of drawing events and still feel connected to who they were in the past. Other people don't experience nearly the same degree of, of external challenges and feel very disrupted. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Jeff P. is speaking with Dr. Kaylin Ratner about how her thesis research was affected during the Cornell University shutdown amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Ratner had been following a cohort of Cornell students beginning in the fall of 2016 and had planned to survey them at the end of their senior year in May 2020. It seems yeah. like from your end, you really try to keep the the nature of your research process pretty much the same and really just interpret it was the interpretation afterwards that was the real things you had to address like all the factors associated with the pandemic and how those things may contribute yeah yeah one thing i i forgot to mention just to kind of like bring to life what we were contending with when we were thinking about launching that final wave you know when we got to that class that which ended up being, I think, our last class together um, in person. We taught the senior seminar of um, the Program for Research on Youth Development and Engagement, PRIDE, the PRIDE Scholars Program. And so it's a small class of like, you know, six to eight people, um, but really intensive class doing hands-on translational work with uh, New York State 4-H. And I remember that class, we were talking about what we were going to do with the project we've been working on all semester, but as soon as the virus topic came up, everybody was crying. Everybody was so, so crestfallen about what this meant. And at that point, we didn't know if we were going to have a commencement. And like, I'm, like, I was supposed to walk this year. And so we're all crying together about this thing that we had you know, dreamed of for years and years and years of, you know, for me at least, like being hooded. And for them, like, 
walking across the stage and we really we really bonded over this this shared loss um we were living in a real period of uncertainty and after that class i remember my advisor and i walked away and we were like we can't launch this right now so that's why we ended up waiting longer do you envision that this experience has altered how you conduct your research both now and in the future um so yeah these are really extraordinary circumstances um, and I am so fortunate and so privileged that I was able to do my data collection at all um, because it, it was administered online. And so, you know, I didn't have to have anybody come into the lab or do any sort of like, I don't know, manipulation or anything like that. Um, I was really lucky in that regard. Uh, going forward, though, you know, coming from the College of Human Ecology, we're always taught person and environment, person and environment, person and environment, pay attention to what's happening around the individual too, that you can't interpret, you know, behavior without context. And so I guess going forward, I see even more of the reason that we need to be attending to these things because again, all my results had to be interpreted within context. Um, and another thing that I think that I don't think has changed, but I think has underscored is the importance of replication in psychology in particular. I, I write in the paper, we really have to do this again at some point to see if the same trend can be observed, not only, you know, just here at Cornell, like just doing the study here at Cornell, but then also replicating these things at non-Cornell institutions in emerging adults that are not college attending. If we actually want to get a real picture of what derailment and depression look like, how they grow, how they change on average over, you know, that four-year period. Where can people find more information about you and your work? I am on Twitter. My handle is just at Kaylin Ratner, so K-A-Y-L-I-N-R-A-T-N-E-R. And then from there, um, I have a website that you can access, and it talks a lot about my work and some of the other, like, publications that we've done. And so it, it's all accessible through Twitter. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on today. You just heard Jeff P. interview Dr. Kaylin Ratner about her research and how it has been affected by COVID-19. Next up on the episode is Miranda Sandu interviewing Dr. Ana Maria Porres about her biomedical research and communication and outreach endeavors. Miranda originally published this interview for her podcast, Tidbits of Research. My guest today is Dr. Ana Maria Porras, currently a Cornell Presidential Postdoctoral Fellow. She's a biomedical engineer whose research ranges on topics from tissue engineering to the gut microbiome. She's a firm proponent of the power of representation, an ambassador for Latinx and STEM, and an advocate for inclusion and diversity. Her passion for science communication transcends a number of different media, from Instagram, where she has a bilingual social media initiative, to art exhibits and science communication workshops. So you are a biomedical engineer, which is a field of engineering that applies engineering principles to medicine and biology for healthcare. What is your particular area of research within this field? Um, so I was trained as a tissue engineer, which is this idea that you can create tissues or things that resemble tissues like a kidney, for example. And the original intention was to use this to replace an organ in the human body. Um, we started to realize that this works really well for tissues like the skin, but not so well for other tissues that need to have like bigger blood supplies, for example. So I was trained in that. And then I used these tissue models to study how disease happens. 
And so before I used to work on heart valves, right, that control the flow of blood from the heart to the rest of your body. Uh, but now I am uh, starting to work on figuring out how to apply these to study how gut microbes and gut bacteria interact with tissue in the human gut. Why is it way harder for things that are, say, not skin tissue? So some tissues, for example, don't need a lot of oxygen. Like they could be really thin, for example, and so oxygen can diffuse really easily in and out. The idea is no matter the type of tissue that you're building, you have to keep the cells alive in order for them to work properly. And so it essentially means the complexity of it really depends on like how easy or how hard can it be to have the cells keep growing. So in tissues that are heavily vascularized, so that need a lot of blood supply, like the heart itself, some muscle, it can be really hard because then you have to figure out a way to not only have the cells that make up the muscle, but also how to form capillaries and all this other stuff. Originally, I think tissue engineers thought it wasn't going to be that hard to make tissues outside of the body. Now we know that the human body is really complex and maybe our best bet is like try to apply those same techniques and maybe just provide the right cues so that the stem cells and cells inside of our body so that we can prime them and then they can make their own tissues. That's kind of like the new paradigm. So you're still kind of using the body. Yes, exactly. So that's the idea that you kind of use the body um, and use the cells as like the little engineers that are like helping to reconstruct and build the right tissues. <laughs> so you do a lot of work with gut microbes right now. How many of these are within us? How big are they? Trillions. So it's in the order of trillions. Oh gosh. There are about 40 trillion microbes that live inside or on the human body everywhere. So it, they could be on your skin, in your gut, in your mouth, uh, for women in the vagina. So they're kind of everywhere. And without them, we probably wouldn't survive very long. Are their sizes or types constant throughout our lives or do they change? That's a great question. It's actually a really good question. Um, it depends on the body site. So when we're born, we have very, very, very few bacteria, for example, in our gut, which is the specific microbiome site I study. So newborn babies can have as few as only three to five different bacteria, which is crazy because adult people can have thousands, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So and, and very quickly, when you're a little kid, the most critical period in the development of your microbiome is when you're very young. And so over your childhood, it can change a lot from when you're a baby to, let's say, when you're like a teenager. Once you're an adult, there's a lot of strains that are more or less permanently associated with you. And there are a lot of strains or like types of bacteria that are really genuinely like unique to you. Like they won't be exactly like other people's, which is kind of insane. Is it like a fingerprint? Yes, exactly. Your gut microbiome? That is a perfect way to describe it. Your gut microbiome is like a fingerprint. Like yours can look similar to, for example, the people you live with, but it won't be exactly the same. So our gut microbiome can tell someone who they live with. What other kinds of things can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> if you were to analyze a person's gut microbiome, you could probably infer a few things about what they eat. So modulating the types of food that you eat can also change your gut microbiome although to have like a long-lasting effect you would have to like dramatically change your diet right so like yes if you go to mcdonald's and eat like a burger maybe some of your microbiome might change but those changes won't stick around unless you keep eating burgers every single day <laughs> right that is the way to like completely alter your insides yeah 
Or if you take long courses of antibiotics, antibiotics can, of course, wipe out your entire microbiome. And then that can be that can be really problematic. That's why sometimes, right, they recommend that you take an antibiotic with other stuff that kind of like protects. Yeah, exactly. To protect your microbiome, really. So, for example, I have a friend who's puppy she's like a foster mom to a puppy and this puppy just went through a very long antibiotic treatment and the vet recommended taking some probiotics now to kind of replenish that microbiome so yeah i mean the same can happen for humans let's talk about hashtag microbe monday basically on your instagram account every monday you post a picture of a new microbe you have crocheted and the story about said microbe how did you decide that this was a means for you to like make your research more accessible? That's a great question. So the first part of the idea, which is using crocheted art, so in most often in my case, microbes, to talk about science, really arose from a festival that I attended, the USA National Science and Engineering Festival, with other people at Cornell who also do microbiome research. And we were just brainstorming ways to attract kids to our booth. And so then that was just kind of my idea. And I don't think anyone, including myself, expected anything special to come out of it. But then, like, it really did work to attract the kids to our booth. And the other volunteers also used them to explain some microbiology concepts. And I made, I think, five or six for that. So and since I already had a bunch of them, I was like, oh, I've been wanting to do something on social media, too. So I'll just do, like, hashtag microfundays. In retrospect, I kind of wish I hadn't made it like a weekly <laughs> hashtag, more like a generic hashtag. Too much work. Yeah, because now like, you know, like today's Micro Monday and it's probably not going to include a new crocheted micro. But I don't even know what I'm going to post today yet. Throwback Monday. Yeah, I kind of wish I hadn't done a weekly thing because it's a lot of work, but it's been really fun. So just as you have Micro Monday on one Instagram account, you have a separate one in which you post a regular microbe martes mm -hmm. in Spanish, and you profile Colombian like scientists and engineers, and you're very kind of active about having this bilingual social media initiative. So tell us a little bit about why that's so important for you, because this sounds like an insane amount of work. It's a lot of work. So again, one of, one of those things where like, if I were to go back in time and do things differently, I probably wouldn't have an English account, like probably my English account would be more like personal stuff and whatever I wanted to share. And I would concentrate on my Spanish one because it is a lot of work. But I feel like I already have an audience in English. So I kind of feel bad just like leaving them hanging. But yeah, my, my Spanish account started. Um, I remember specifically because I was already doing micro Mondays for maybe a month, maybe a little longer before I started the account in Spanish. And I specifically remember that one of my cousins said that she loved what I was doing, but that she couldn't understand it. Like she wished she could understand it. And that really got me thinking about how, you know, she's right. Like she is right. Like not even my family can see what I'm doing. Like that's not right. And then I became even more passionate about it because then I was just like, I was really torn on whether I should do my captions half in English, half in Spanish. Like I know how to do it. And so then I started looking up Psycom accounts in Spanish and I couldn't even find 10 compared to in the United States. Like now there are way more than 10, but when I was looking, there really weren't. And compared to the US where we already had two years ago, hundreds of science communication accounts. And I'm, I'm also sure it's because I also wasn't plugged into the Psycom community in Spanish yet. Mm -hmm. But either way, I was, I, I continue to be appalled by the lack of science communication content in other languages 
not just Spanish compared to English. So I was like, no, I'm going to do a separate account. And I'm pretty passionate about making sure that, well, on Micro Mondays and Micro Martes, it's more or less the same content, um, but making sure that the context and the way in which I make it relevant is unique to the needs of each audience. And there's different types of people following both. So for example, in my Spanish account, a lot of my audience are college students, which that's not really the case in my account in English. So of course, they're going to be looking for different things. You are a um, AAAS If Then Ambassador. The AAAS is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And this If Then program basically brings together 125 women from science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to serve as high-profile role models for middle school girls. What kinds of activities have you been involved with as an ambassador? And have you had to rethink any due to the current situation? Those are both great questions. So as If Then ambassadors, we do a lot of stuff, not only related to middle school, Uh, girls, but the the general idea is to increase the representation of women in STEM in a variety of different ways. And so there's been a ton of different things. Let me think. There's so many that I I should sit down and write them down (laughs) sometime. Um, Well, first of all, the really cool part is that there are 125 of us from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of types of careers. So there was a summit in a last October where we all were there together, getting to know each other. So that in itself was really enriching. Um, But since then, I've also, especially with COVID, I've done a lot of virtual engagements with classrooms around the U.S. and with children who are doing like summer camp at home. Like curiosity camp? Uh, So that was a different one. Yeah. So then the other thing I've done is uh, with the IFDEN program, we often partner with other members of the IFDEN coalition, like Goldie Blocks. And so I was part of a series that Goldie Blocks, the toy company, started this summer called Curiosity Camp. And so we got to shoot a short video about microbes. That was pretty fun. And um, we also get a chance to apply for mini grants to kind of put together our own projects and so originally the idea was to travel to Colombia we're hoping to still do that but at a smaller scale now Um, and so I'm proposing that but of course now we have contingencies for next year in case like of what we'll do if we can't do it in person Um, and then the other thing that's really cool that actually went live today is that there is the Ibsen collection and so this Ibsen collection has thousands of pictures and videos of women doing science and engineering and math and technology, et cetera, um, completely free, available for teachers, for anyone who needs like pictures of women in STEM. And so I'm super excited about that. You have been very vulnerable publicly about a number of experiences you've had from this recent thread on Twitter on your life as an international student to this recent webinar that SACNAS, the Society Advancing Chicanos, Hispanics and Native Americans in Science, organized on imposter syndrome. And you have also been very deliberate about not separating your personal life from your social media life. To some extent, we we lack people that either feel the things we feel or look the way we look or say the things we wish we could say. And so on the one hand, it is great when we have those role models. But on the other, kind of from your end, it comes with this the word that comes to mind is burden. Like, do you feel like it's a burden to like have to do these things or say these things? 
That's a great question. No, I do not feel it at all like a burden. And I've been thinking a lot about this since Black Lives Matter because I kind of shifted that in my mind, right? A lot of times we think of a lot of this work as extra work. But I think if we really want all, not just science, but any field that you're in to be just equitable, inclusive, diverse, all of those things, right? We need to stop thinking of these things as extra and think of them as being all of these initiatives, all of these efforts as being directly linked and intrinsically important for the type of work that we do. And I personally don't feel like it's a burden. Like, do I sometimes overwork myself a little? Yes. But like, I don't want to lessen my burden. I don't, I don't usually take on more than I can handle. These are all things I like doing. What I wish would happen more is that one, other people would do this work more than maybe the rest of us would be asked to do it a little less. Right. And also, I wish it was recognized formally in things like fellowship applications, uh, promotions for tenure, decisions on whether you should graduate or not. And then it wouldn't be a burden at all, right? It would just be like one other thing you're doing as part of your job. And so, no, I don't see it as a burden. I just wish other people would stop seeing it as a burden and recognize it for what it is. <laughs> Which is invisible work, right? Yeah. Well, Ana Maria Porras, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been so much fun. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> this was a selection from my interview with Ana Maria Porras. You can find the full interview in episode two of Tidbits of Research. I hope hearing about these crocheted microbes has sparked your interest. You can follow Ana Maria Porras on Instagram at anamaporras or at anaerobias. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Locally Sourced Science. In today's episode, you heard Jeff P. interview Dr. Kaylin Ratner and Smiranda Sandu interview Dr. Anna Maria Porras. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Joe Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. You can find more information on topics covered today, as well as all of our archive shows at our podcast website, www.locallysourcedscience.org.